Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is podcast number 49 in the first half of American history. In podcast 48, we reviewed the settling and the conclusion of the American Civil War as laid out at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, in April of 1865. We reviewed the mindset that Ulysses Grant was now bringing to the treaty, or the, excuse me, the conclusion of the American Civil War and how different it was when he was appointed as top commander. And I don't mean different in a bad way, but just now the fact that the South was willing to lay down their arms, Grant was willing to, to extend a hand over the former line that separated the Union from the Confederacy. So we looked at the different points of the Confederate surrender. We saw the perhaps human side of Abraham Lincoln, of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, and wanting to go down and literally sit at the desk of where Jefferson Davis once sat for his short term as the first and only president of the Confederate States of America. We looked at the outcome, both of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. We reviewed the 50th anniversary of the uh, Battle of Gettysburg from July 1st to 3rd in the 50th anniversary in 1913. We then did a quick and sad review of the casualty count on both sides of this truly $600 million conflict. Now, in podcast 49, what we're going to see here, unfortunately, is the assassination of our 16th president, our first president that will die due to an assassin's bullet, and then begin to look at the immediate results of this program called Reconstruction. In terms of the assassination of President Lincoln, just a couple of myths just to dispel here. First, is that Abraham Lincoln is not the first president to die in office, as we know. William Henry Harrison died before him, our first president to die in office in 1841. Zachary Taylor died in office in 1850. But this is our first president to be felled by an assassin's bullet. However, once again, too, this is not our first president that was an attempted to be, there's not our first president to die of an assassin's bullet because there were attempts to kill presidents before this. One of the more poignant ones, sadly, was that of President Andrew Jackson when a would-be assassin came up and within point-blank range fired not one but two weapons into Jackson's abdomen both which backfired, ironically enough, saving the seventh president uh, the fate of dying to an assassin's bullet. But this is the first attempt that goes from attempt, sadly, to fruition when Abraham Lincoln, of course, is killed by John Wilkes Booth. First off, let's look at this individual of John Wilkes Booth. In terms of 
who he is. Because, of course, Booth is the assassin of what is arguably one of America's, if not America's, most beloved presidents, we tend to cast him in a negative light. And therein lies the danger, because we are then robbed of the reality of who he was and why he was able to get so close to the president of the United States physically to get to the point of being able to touch the president. So we want to uh, scoff at Booth and sweep him under the carpet, never to be talked about again, not to tarnish the president's memory because what Abraham Lincoln did and who he was, that's what we need to focus on. And I'm not here to say that that, that shouldn't be, but just like Adolf Hitler in my world history podcast, and the way I'll discuss it too, in my second half of American history podcast, when I get to World War II, I look at the earlier years because that's where in modern times, we might be able to be on guard for individuals who are behaving like former ruthless dictators or individuals in the United States that are behaving along the likes of Ali Harvey Oswald a Leon Chalgas, a Charles Guiteau, Garfield's assassin, or in this case, John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin. The fact of the matter, ladies and gentlemen, is John Wilkes Booth, as we know, was an actor. He was supposed to be in the play called Our American Cousin that Lincoln and his wife and guests were supposed to attend that evening. However, Abraham Lincoln made a speech shortly before that infamous evening when he was killed, talking about reconciliation with the South, reconciliation now with the former slaves of the United States, and talking about equality for all as the United States attempts to rebuild and moves forward. It was beyond a moving speech. It invigorated the crowds that wanted to put this unbelievably expensive, both in terms of blood and treasure, to put this massive conflict behind us, rebuild, and move on. Americans were so invigorated by the speech, but also negatively surprised at how much Abraham Lincoln had aged over the last four years, that literally, truly, hundreds of thousands of slates of pictures of Abraham Lincoln's stills, in other words, were thrown away because of the fact that they thought Abraham Lincoln, his age and health might improve, his, his look might improve as time goes on in his second term. So knowing that he had another four years, hundreds of thousands of early photographs were thrown out paintings and pictures so that they could then begin to photograph the president as he moves through his second term, having no idea, sadly, that an individual actor that was listening at a distance to this speech vowed that this 16th president would never be able to make another speech again. So who was this John Wilkes Booth that was listening to this? First off, Again, as an actor in American entertainment, 
He was, and oftentimes I start this particular part of the American Civil War or aftermath by asking my students, what do we know of Booth? Well, he was an actor, but what do we know of him? Well, he was a starving actor. He wasn't able to get good work. That's what led to economic instability. He was a depressed man, on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, the exact opposite was true. John Wilkes Booth was arguably one of America's number one top entertainers, if not number one stars. If there was a modern day Hollywood at the time of the 1860s, John Wilkes Booth clearly would have had a star in the streets of Hollywood. He was that good. He came from a family of actors. He had natural talent. He had a wonderful mind for being able to remember lines with such detail that most of his contemporaries could never fathom or even attempt to try to equal. He was very good at what he did. To our knowledge, John Wilkes Booth was America's first entertainer to ironically ask for a security detail around him because also as America's first actor, he was... he was America's first actor to have his clothes torn by a fawning public, especially the females that just wanted to touch him, just wanted to get a piece of his vest or his sleeve. He was beyond famous. Think about it, listeners. How would John Wilkes Booth been able to get up to the box where Abraham Lincoln and his wife were sitting? So this whole idea that Booth was this backwards, incompetent actor is folly. There's nothing to support it. In this regard, though, when I'm talking about myth and folly, I, as you've already have heard through, if you've been listening to my podcast going from the beginning of American, much less world history, you know that I will, on occasion, more than on several occasions, I'll bring in a book or something from another academic scholar or from somebody in another field that can shed light on the topic we're talking about so that my listeners and my students can realize I'm not just spewing this stuff from the top of my head. It's not just my opinion, but here's experts that I'm bringing in from fields all over the world that can supplement what it is we're talking about. In this case, I'm not bringing in any one book to talk about John Wilkes Booth. Anytime I read a book, it's obviously a book that I admire. It's a book I have faith in, confidence in, I respect. I also make it a standard, a practice to never decry a book, to never denounce an author whom I disagree with. And I'm not going to start now. But I will say this. There has been in the recent history, 21st century history, books, a book, that has come out on the life of John Wilkes Booth. This book claims to have the support for its writing by discussing what John Wilkes Booth was thinking the day of the assassination, what his actions were on the night of the assassination, what he did immediately after shooting the 16th president. The fact of the matter is, listeners, we have no knowledge of what John Wilkes Booth was thinking. That book is written purely on conjecture. I have on the surface no problem with that, as long as it is in the fiction side or creative nonfiction. What I, what I, my blood boils is when I see those types of books 
in the history section next to the great authors like St Doris Kearns Goodwin, Stephen Ambrose, Michael Beschloss. This author does not deserve to even be in the same bookstore with these authors, much less again in the history section, because Bill Booth left nothing in writing where we could look at and say, oh, that's what he was thinking. That's why he did what he did. No witnesses were with Booth immediately afterwards to be able to come back and testify to what Booth did. This is conjecture. And the author that wrote about this does make a disclaimer. Hey, you know, a lot of this is based on conjecture. Then that's where it belongs in terms of where in the bookstore, but not with history. This same author wrote a book about an assassination attempt of a modern president. Yet that entire book was written with not one personal advisor to, to this president, never talked to his family, never talked to his spouse, but yet an entire book was written on the way the president changed as a result of an assassination attempt. That's the kind of quote unquote writing that I do have a problem with. So again, with John Wilkes Booth, we don't know necessarily what he was thinking on the day of, what he did immediately after. All we do know is that Booth vowed that Lincoln would never make that kind of public address again. He was on a mission now. And this is where, again, some of my students find it surprising when they learn that John Wilkes Booth was not the only assassin that evening. Booth was one of a dozen assassins that was to take out the entire Lincoln administration. John Wilkes Booth recruited 11 men to take out the Lincoln cabinet and his closest advisors. However, you might wonder, how can Booth, even in the days when there's no social media, how can he attempt to try to recruit 11 people and nobody blows the whistle? Because Booth was smart enough to not explain exactly what these men were being trained for. And it was also, of course, being done in secrecy and in haste, as time, according to Booth, was of the essence. So when Booth recruits these members, again, how does not one of them become a, a whistleblower? Well, look at it this way. And this is the way I present it to my classes. I ask them, because I'm not good with who's popular in Hollywood, whether it be male or female actor, actresses, etc. But I, I ask for a show of hands. For example, somebody Stephen shout outs. Give me the example of arguably the most popular, the most famous, maybe even the most well-paid actor in Hollywood in the current times, as of that day, as of the morning of this class. And names will come up. And I'm dating myself because I don't know, again, the age of my listeners either. I don't want to name a popular 21st century actor. So I'm going to go dip way back to the middle and later half of the 20th century. And let's just bring up a name like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. Bruce Willis may be a little bit more modern. And for my international listeners, again, I understand that those names may not be familiar. But these are just extremely popular actors that throughout the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, even into modern times in the case of Clint Eastwood and Bruce Willis, they are beyond famous. So as I tell my students, imagine that Clint Eastwood, and I'm just going to choose one name now, but Clint Eastwood walks into the classroom and says, hey, I need to have 11 volunteers to 
help me with a particular type of important mission. Can I have some volunteers, please? Who is not going to raise their hands? Who is not going to say, yes, please me, right? So Booth has no problem, <coughs> excuse me, has no problem getting 11 people to jump on board with them. Why? And I put that to my class, to my students. Why? Why would, what do you think they were doing? And most of them get it right. They're probably thinking there's another future play that Booth is looking for actors for. And this is a tryout. This is a trial. So they knowingly go along with it. The individuals that Booth was taking or tapping on the shoulder were largely unemployed or at least not consistently employed, were not well-educated. Most were not literate. So, so they were an easy pickings, if to use that phrase. And Booth did his best to keep, again, the real focus of the mission secret. But he had them practice in using firearms, weapons such as knives. <coughs> Excuse me. They practiced on one another, of course, without drawing blood, on how to get close to somebody without making any noise, how to step over a torso of somebody, if necessary, to slit their throat. Yes, these were gory practices, but these 11 men ate it up because, again, they figured one of them or more was going to be picked for some future play, and all this was was a trial exercise and practices. And they went along with it, showed up every day, quote-unquote, for practice until the actual day that the assassinations were to take place. Because on that morning when all the men arrived for quote-unquote practice, Booth revealed that the practice was being done for a very real and serious reason. And with that, Booth then gives the addresses of Lincoln's cabinet that each man is to go to at some point in the early to mid evening hours and carry out the mission that they have been trained for. The men supposedly were stunned. All but one, upon getting on their horse or walking away from the meeting point, fled the scene. All but one. One stayed back, thinking that this was still part of the ploy, part of the training, which is the reason why on the night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, William Seward, America's Secretary of State, also had his throat slashed in two different directions by his would-be assassin, who then jumped off the bed that William Seward was sleeping in and fled the scene to be caught later, of course. William Seward's jugular was missed only by a couple of millimeters and the reason why he ultimately was saved. But for the remainder of his life, Secretary of State Seward had these ghastly looking scars and an X pattern across his throat. In terms of assassinating the President of the United States, that ultimate prize, of course, was for Booth himself. Again, from that point of time in the day of the assassination, 
to when Booth arrives at Ford's Theater. We don't know what Booth did, what he thought, where he went, or what was going on again in his mind, despite what a modern author is attempting to say we do. So I'm going to, Jen, advance right up to the evening. Abraham Lincoln and his wife arrive at Ford's Theater. Now, please know Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. is still there. The actual street is laid out very similar to what it was in 1865, including the building, which is no longer a private residence, but a building right across the street that Lincoln's body was taken to after the assassination. We don't know if Abraham Lincoln knew ahead of time that the star of the play of our American cousin, John Wilkes Booth, was not there and it was not going to be there. We don't know, again, if Lincoln knew, if he did know, was he disappointed, what went through the president's mind, we'll never know. But Booth, upon arriving at the theater, immediately feigned that something was wrong with him personally and he wouldn't be able to lead tonight's performance as he was scheduled and had practiced to do. Now think about it. Again, sometimes my students will say, wait a minute, wouldn't they cancel the production? Wouldn't they cancel the performance if the main actor couldn't be there? Heck no. The president of the United States is showing up with his wife, the first lady. They're not about to cancel that performance. What's more is that anybody that was in a secondary role would now have the opportunity to shine in the lead role. So of course Booth was, yeah, hey Booth, yeah, you're not looking a little pasty there, huh? A little nervous there? I uh, got a fever. What's going on with the sweating around the brow? So, of course, Booth had no resistance from anybody in order to be able to leave the theater because he wasn't feeling well. Yeah, I hope you're feeling better tomorrow. Let's get him shut the door and make sure you lock it so that we can get on with the performance. And that's what Booth did. He walked out of the back door, walked around to the front of Ford's Theater and walked in towards and talked to the one to the front desk where they were still selling tickets. Now, again. It's as though, how did Booth possibly get up to the box by walking in the front door? Wasn't there a security detail with Abraham around Abraham Lincoln? Absolutely there was. In fact, the boxes on either side of Abraham Lincoln were not allowed to have tickets sold for. For security reasons, Lincoln was supposed to be in a box, box seat all by himself. And he did have security detail with him who were posted down the stairs near the entrance so that nobody could get upstairs in the one only way that you could get up to the box office seats. So again, he's got this detail. They are concerned about his safety. But when Booth walks in and goes to the ticket counters and goes to the cashiers, remember again, think of this as Clint Eastwood walking into a movie theater for a movie that is starring him. Of course, people are going to be fawning for him, asking for autographs, which he did and he gave. However, that's not where the president is. So he talks with the ticket counters and the, the, the money changers and then works his way over to the security detail, who are astonished that the star of the show is now standing in front of him with a performance that has already started at this point. And Booth said to the security guards something to the effect of, yeah, I'm really disappointed that I just wasn't feeling well to perform, to be the main actor in tonight's performance of our American cousin. And if I might, gentlemen, could you please just step aside so I can just go up to the president of the United States and apologize personally for not having been able to have the wherewithal to make tonight's performance, to perform 
is a way he might have been expecting me. Of course, ladies and gentlemen, they step aside and let John Wilkes Booth, with his weapon under his clothing, to ascend the steps and walk down the long hallway, reach into his pants, grab the weapon, and point it at Abraham Lincoln's head and take the single shot. If there wasn't a security detail there, as mythically we believe that Lincoln was alone, he didn't have the Secret Service. Well, the Secret Service, by definition, did not exist yet, except for on the president's desk, which I'll get out, which I'll discuss later on. But no, there was no box of security that we're used to seeing with our modern day presidents. However, if there was no security detail, again, as mythically believed, all Booth had to do was turn around and run right back down the hallway, down the steps and out the theater, front doors. No, Booth was smart enough to know that the moment that shot is heard, Lincoln's security detail is going to be uh, uh, forwarding up the, flying up the steps and down the hallway. So upon taking the shot, Booth jumped off out of the box seat area and down to the floor below where he severely injured one of his ankles, causing him to limp away from the theater and a limp ultimately to his escape point, which was a small boat on the Potomac River. So Booth mortally wounded Lincoln, of course, by gunfire. He died, as we know, Abraham Lincoln died at 7.02 the following morning on April 15, 1865. Legislation, however, was found on Lincoln's desk for the creation, ironically enough, of an organization that would retrospectively be called the Secret Service. Lincoln was smart enough to know that, yes, he was a target during his entire presidency as the American Civil War raged. Lincoln was also smart enough to understand the human condition that even though the war will be concluded now at the beginning of his second term, that there are going to be individuals who are not satisfied with the outcome and will want to take out the American chief executive. So might there be a detail of security personnel that could be with the president on the rare occasions that he leaves the White House itself. The idea of a White House compound, that doesn't exist yet. The White House is a standalone structure at this point. So in the event that Lincoln were to walk out of the White House to go down into the city that, or further into the city, that he would have a security detail. However, was this forced to be created out of thin air? Well, yes and no. The Secret Service main mission, as Lincoln outlined it, and the reason why it was needed was because of the economic shambles that the United States found itself in. The southern states were beyond slaughtered, both on land and the harbors. Their economy was in ruin. The North economy wasn't doing much better especially now as production is going to come to a grinding halt with all the surplus material being made for the war effort. Inflation had the opportunity, unfortunately, to skyrocket. What's worse is that 50% of the American currency and far more than 50% of the Confederate currency was counterfeit. 
So the goal of the Secret Service wasn't primarily to protect the president. It was to go after counterfeiters. And that mission hasn't changed through to the 21st century. The average employee, the vast majority of employees who are employed by the Secret Service, have nothing to do with protecting anybody. They're going after counterfeiters. And that's the reason why the Secret Service reported to the Secretary of the Treasury, not the President of the United States, why we mythically believe. But because Lincoln knew that getting the scoundrels that were making counterfeit currency wasn't going to be an easy task, and these would be individuals that would have the wherewithal to fight being arrested and fight their in, and make a formidable resistance. Lincoln knew that these future government workers for the Secret Service would have to be well-trained in self-defense and to, trained to apprehend people. Might there be a small force within that group that could then be trained to know the president, know the first lady and the first family, and protect him should and when he need it? But that, again, would only be the secondary role, which then leads me with the question, why then is the assassination of President Lincoln still studied well over 150 years later? What about that assassination haunts the Secret Service to this day? And has the mission now, in our modern age of technology, changed because of the increased difficulty in trying to produce counterfeit currency. Those are the questions that will begin with our next podcast, the 50th podcast, and our series in the first half of American history. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsoli.com, and email me with any questions you might have, comments, or book recommendations. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.